All right. Um, we're studying through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, this afternoon, we are at Ezra chapter 9. And so if you do have a Bible with you um, and would like to follow along, I, I'm actually going to read the entire chapter. So I'm going to, warning, it's long. Okay? It's, it's a long chapter. Well, there's 38 verses, and I'm only going to read 37. So you're, you're welcome. Uh, but you're going to find, once I start reading, that in the third verse that I read, it's going to be talking about a, a, a service where they read the Bible for a quarter of the day, which, according to the Jewish day, would equal about three hours of time. And so we're going to be reading about an event in ancient Israel's time where they stood up and read the Bible for three hours. So again, you're welcome. It's only going to be eight minutes to get through uh, this chapter. So it'll be up on the screen. If you have a Bible, a device in front of you, follow along with me as we, oh, one more thing about this long chapter. I don't recommend that you take a nap during this chapter. Okay. It's going to be eight minutes. So you could doze off, set your timer and be back with us in eight minutes. But I don't, I don't recommend that because there's actually a very important chapter. This is a chapter that could change your life. Uh, it's actually a chapter that should change your life. And I'm going to explain why and how that is once we dig into the text. So again, okay, I think I've done all I can to get your attention through this long reading of God's Word. Nehemiah chapter 9. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. They stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shibaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shanani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up. And bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You've made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you've kept your promise, for you are righteous." And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst, and you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. 
But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan, You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land, and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, They were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies." And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, Our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day 
in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Father in heaven, take this passage, this section, this history, these words breathed out by yourself and sow them into our hearts to know you more. In Jesus' name, amen. The concepts that you believe to be true are the concepts that control you. That was the opening line of a sermon that I heard over 40 years ago, and I've never forgotten it. I keep going over it, and I've only lived through those decades realizing how true that statement actually is. The concepts that you believe to be true are the concepts that control you. It's not saying whether or not the concepts are right or correct. The statement is simply the ones that you believe to be true are the ones that control you. It's as if each one of us has sort of a sheet of our lives. Let's call it a sheet of music that you are playing your life from. Here's the music stand, and you have it on on it, your sheet. And on this sheet is a list of the concepts that you believe to be true. And you are living off that sheet of music. The decisions that you make, the things that you value, they're on that sheet, and that determines how you live. Now, everyone's sheet of music will be unique and alter somewhat, but we all have one. I'm better than most. I'm worse than most. The good opinions of others is an absolute necessity. Having more than enough money is a requirement. I must have an impressive formal education. I must be married. I must have children. I must stand out. I must keep my head down and avoid trouble at all costs. I don't know what's all on your list, but we all have a sheet in front of us that we're living out of. Now, our chapter is about a day of confession. A group of Israelites set aside a day to confess before the Lord. Now, typically, when you hear the word confession, you might immediately be thinking about how we're called to confess our sins one to another. Confession means I have to admit when I was wrong, and I need to say it out loud. I was wrong, and I need to say that. I need to confess that to the appropriate people at the appropriate time. It's a wonderful practice, extremely helpful. David Powelson refers to confession as the pressure relief of the soul. Because here's how it works. When, in fact, we do sin against the Lord, it creates a pressure in the soul, guilt and shame, two horrible experiences that our souls are really not designed to hold on to or to keep or have residing in our soul. And here God comes and provides a means and a way to relieve that pressure. Now, Most of us in the room would have some experience with guilt and shame, and you know how miserable that is when those things are stuck inside your soul. Part of the remedy is confession, saying it out loud to the right people. Oddly enough, at times, often, confession is an extremely difficult thing to do. Amen? Is that not true? Yes. In fact, sometimes it feels like we would rather die than actually confess, say out loud how I was actually wrong. I want to propose to you that the reason confession is so difficult is because it does not reconcile with the sheet of music on your music stand that you are living your life out of. It's completely contrary to that. 
That's why you feel, I feel the struggle. These are the things that are important. These are the things I live by. Your good opinion, and if I tell you how I'm wrong, I'm acting in total contradiction to the sheet of music that I'm living my life by. Now, Nehemiah chapter 9 is all about and is an opportunity for God to take your sheet of music and remove it and put a new one in front of you to live by. He puts a new sheet of music on our stand. And living from the right sheet of music will mean that knowing the Lord brings more joy than sorrow as our confession becomes more about God than about ourselves. What we're going to see in this chapter is that confession is to be much more about God than it is about ourselves. And when we have God's sheet that we're living life out of, the concepts that we believe to be true, we will find more joy than sorrow as our confession becomes more about God than ourselves. He's replacing a sheet on your music stand with a big me at the top and replacing it with one with a big the Lord at the top. And that's the beginning of the change that we need in our hearts and in our lives and the benefit that we can gain from Nehemiah chapter 9. Let me make the first point about just the setting that we're talking about in history here. It's another gathering. And if you remember Tim's message from the previous chapter talking about what is taking place, they had a, a gathering a little over a week ago, maybe a couple weeks prior to this. They gathered, and there was a reading from the Bible. And as they heard the reading from the Bible, their hearts were broken because they realized we've not been doing anything that God has been telling us to do. We are like really off our game. Now that we have God's word exposed, it's exposing us. And they were cut to the heart and they were broken and they were crying and they were mourning. But Nehemiah steps in and says, stop it. Rejoice first. What was read to you was first and foremost about God, not you. Respond first. Rejoice. This is not a time to mourn. You need to rejoice about who God is and what he has said. And so they did. It's a little funny to read this account because typically you and I live lives much more enslaved to our emotions the thought of just somebody saying, oh, you're sad, be happy, uh, you're happy, be sad, it doesn't really compute with us because we feel what we feel and we flow with that. But corporately and oddly enough, they're sad, they're crying, they're mourning, and Nehemiah says, no, stop it, rejoice. Here's reason to rejoice. And so they rejoice and they respond to God's word by celebrating the Feast of Booze. It was the first thing, and it was the time on the calendar. It was like, here's one of the ways that we were wrong in not obeying the Lord. And so basically the Feast of Booze is go camping for a week. Seven days of camping. Live in a tent. Build a little makeshift tent and live in that. And that is supposed to call to mind experientially how faithful God was by caring for his people through the wilderness as they were camping. They were on a 40-year camp out. And over 40 years, God was with them constantly and provided for them. This amazing testimony. Okay, we're going camping for 40 years, and the only shoes you can bring are the ones on your feet. 40 years. And we finished 40 years, and those shoes are just as good then as they are today. Your clothes that you're wearing, you got the clothes on your back. That's what we're going in with, and you're coming out with those clothes. And they look just fine after 40 years. 
So go camping for seven days so you remember and think about who God is and how well he provided for you for 40 years. The day after this feast, they gather again for a day of confession. Now they're back to mourning. They obeyed the word of the Lord. They obeyed Nehemiah. They took time to rejoice. They celebrated. But now they're back again with the reality of their failure, of their sin, of their neglect. And so they set aside a day for confession. Now we're looking at confession in a bit of a broader sense than, as I mentioned earlier, we just think of, oh, that means I have to tell somebody how I was wrong. I have to confess to them. We're looking at it more broadly. This is a day of corporate confession, more along the line, something that we might call the creeds or the confessions of the church. They're formulating the concepts that they believe to be true. They are stating what they believe to be true so that they can live out of them. Confession is a huge part of the Christian faith. It's a huge part of our salvation. It is significant that we say things about God that we believe. Romans 8, uh, chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So let's look at some of the detail of this confession that comprises Nehemiah chapter 9. This is the new sheet that God puts on the stand. And it is, first and foremost, about God. There's a place for you and me on it. There's a place for the people on the sheet. But when we go through this, and if you, if you stayed awake through the eight minutes of reading that chapter, you know this chapter is far more about God than anyone else. It begins, you are the Lord. You alone. This, according to John Frame, is the most important thing to know about God, that he is the Lord. I love the opening line of his book about God. The first thing, and in one sense the only thing we need to know about God, is that he is Lord. In other words, he rules over, is Lord over all things. He, God, Yahweh, is the Lord. That's the starting point. His identity. Who is he? He's the Lord who created all things. Heaven and earth, meaning unseen and seen. He is the creator of all things. Not just the earth, everything on the earth. Not just the seas, everything in the seas. The doctrine of creation is foundation for so many things. If you don't get this right, so many things go wrong. This is the beginning. You see what's happening here. We're getting a sort of systematic theology. This is the confession. He's the Lord. And next, he's the creator of all things. Without the doctrine of creation... If you eliminate that, and it has been eliminated by the world that we live in, if you eliminate the doctrine of creation, Christianity becomes just one more box of religious cereal on the shelf out of 100 choices to choose from. It makes no difference. But it's because God created all things. With this doctrine rightly understood, the Lord is in his rightful place. And from this comes any and all human responsibility. Without the doctrine of creation, there's no real case to be made for human responsibility. But this changes everything. Not just general responsibility. I'm talking about specific obligation to the creator. 
If God created all things, including you and me, that puts us in a position of relationship to that creator that lands on us with obligation and responsibility. It all begins in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. Everything builds on there. To eliminate that leaves ourselves as some sort of imagined autonomous shoppers of truth. It doesn't matter anymore. All, all the parameters are gone. It doesn't make any difference at this point. Your sheet of music is your sheet of music. It makes no difference. Nobody has anything to say about it. But because God is the creator, everything's different. We see it in the day that we live in. All the issues of gender, sexuality, all the confusion. Where did that go wrong? The doctrine of creation was left behind at some point. So now... You can't look to the doctrine of creation to tell you who you are. You have to look elsewhere. You have to look inside yourself. You have to look to the opinions of others to determine to the point, are you even a man or a woman? The doctrine of creation is the starting point of answering these questions. Eliminate it. And the confusion and trouble is endless. He's the Lord. He created all things. And it says he preserves all of it. Okay, so the Lord is the creator. And he is also the sustainer of all things. This is important to know about who God is. This eliminates any option of deism. Like God just got it all started, set it up, wound up the clock, and is letting it run, and we are now on our own. False. Why? Because God is the sustainer of all things, still actively involved, still holding everything together, still making sure all the atoms spin and move and do just as they were called to do in his creation. But it's because he's involved actually sustaining it. This doctrine insists that our dependence and our worship to the Lord exist at all times. He's never stepped out of the picture. He keeps himself in it, sustaining all things. So therefore, your position, my position, our role, our identity, who we are in relation to the creator and now the sustainer becomes clear. The text goes on. You chose Abram, brought him out, gave him a new name. You chose him, you brought him out, you gave him a new name, you made a promise to him. Here's really the, the foundation of saving grace taking place right here. In God calling Abraham, he begins to lay out, we begin to see a picture of how God saves people. Doctrines of grace beginning to take form, to take shape right here. God's electing love. His covenantal promise which becomes the theme throughout the rest of this chapter. The whole sheet of music begins with this promise that he made to Abraham and how he was always, God the Lord was always faithful to the promise that he made to him. And Abraham's receiving that promise, hearing from God, enabling him to trust and believe. We see the beginnings of faith. God's electing love on display with Abraham. I know that some of you deeply love that doctrine. I'm aware that not all of you do. 
And I'm fully aware that sometimes that doctrine of God's electing love is a difficult pill to swallow. I was reminded of a, a good picture, a good illustration to sort of explain some of the tension. Sometimes when we think of God's electing love, God initiating, God being the first to initiate who comes to him, we end up forming this picture in our mind of God standing at the gates of heaven in a mass of people, all of humanity, pounding at the door to come in. Please, let me in. And God is standing there saying, oh no, oh no, not you. You, you can come in. You cannot come in. You can come in. And you can come The rest of you, you cannot come in. And there's often a picture, something like that, which makes it very difficult. And frankly, if there was any truth in that, I would wholeheartedly agree with you. That's a lousy picture. That's a lousy portrayal of who the Lord is. The reality is that's not the picture of how it is. The picture is quite the opposite. We've got all of humanity running away from God, ignoring, resisting, rebelling, turning, shrugging, presumptuously, stiffening, hardening, resisting, running away. Let me get away from you as fast as I can. And God's electing love out of all of humanity with their backs to the Lord reaches out and says, you and you and you and you. A multitude, a multitude he gathers to himself. The struggle we have with that doctrine is we think God is going to say no to somebody who wants to get in. It's simply not what the doctrine is at all. We're all at one point saying, I don't want in. And God says, I know I can win your heart anyway. Because I have this supernatural electing love. Now, you don't understand this when it happens. You don't understand it before it happens. You only kind of get it after the fact, looking back at what happened. And there it is, and we see it with Abraham. There is no story of Abraham seeking God, trying to figure out, okay, where's salvation? How am I going to find it? Where am I going to go? He's just another guy in a pagan land doing what all the pagans did. And God called him out. Next, our text says that he saw their affliction. You heard their cry. You saw their affliction. They are enslaved in Egypt. You made yourself aware of how badly and how wrongly they were being treated. God saw how the Egyptians oppressed them. God saw how they stood over them and treated them so poorly and so badly. And he was aware of their affliction. Most of us, probably all of us, have struggled in moments of loss and suffering and hardship and had thoughts of, God, don't you care? Why are you doing this to me? Why aren't you helping me? Why aren't you aware of what I'm going through? And in fact, on some of your sheets of music, that's a line item. God didn't come, didn't meet, didn't satisfy, wasn't there, didn't care, something. Now, the new sheet of music that God puts on your stand is saying, I see affliction. I'm aware when people hurt. I know your loneliness. I know your tears. I know your pain. I am very aware of how you are suffering. Number six, he performed mighty signs and wonders. 
Okay, do you, do you understand what's happening here? We are, we are forming a poster of God. We are drawing a poster, a picture of who God is. We are, we are laying out line, line by line who the Lord is. And it's getting down into the details here. He sees hurting people. He acts and responds with mighty signs and wonders. He, he acted in ways to show his power and his love for his people and his wrath against their enemies. He did marvelous signs, amazing signs. He stepped into history, did supernatural wonders to make a name for himself to rescue his people. He delivers them. Then they recount, you, you led them. You led your people with your presence in the wilderness. Can you imagine escaping a place, let's say, in Pasadena, we're all oppressed, we have overlords that are making our lives miserable, we're enslaved, we're in bondage, and God makes a way of escape, and we end up going due east. And after, I don't know how many miles, we get past the L.A. sprawl, and we're in the desert. Can you imagine just waking up day after day and seeing the desert? At some point, you don't know which way to go. You don't know where you are. As far as the eye can see in every direction is just wilderness. And what the text is telling us that the Lord was with them and led them. He showed them where to go. A pillar of cloud by day, pillar of cloud of fire by night, so they could see the way they were supposed to go. Without that, they would not know the way to go. But God, the Lord, who created and sustained all things, who chose and called was there by his spirit to lead them in the way they should go. You spoke, giving them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. I don't know if those are adjectives you typically use when you think about laws and commandments, but this is their confession because they are beginning to realize the goodness of God and the things that God spoke, right rules, true laws, good statutes and commandments. We tend to think of them as restrictive, confining, controlling. They are bad things too often in our hearts and in our minds and no doubt Many of you would have had experience with bad laws, bad situations, bad commands, bad statues, hurtful, harmful, destructive. But now we're talking about the Lord. Now we're building a case for who God is. And now the sequence comes down. It's the Lord that was giving them right, true, good ways to live and to honor him. He gave them an inheritance of good land, a promise of a better land, a promised land, a wonderful land, a fruitful land. I, I learned a lesson in my, probably my first year of pastoring. You, you never use the word fat in a sermon. You just don't. It's just a bad idea. It just, it's a trigger for some people, and so you don't. But, but I, I found it, sorry, I found it kind of, humorous in this text god gave them this land it was so fruitful there's so many trees there's so much vegetation it's so good it's so fruitful and you sat in all the goodness of the lord and, and you ate and you ate and you ate and you got so fat in this land i think that's funny because 
uh, I think the Lord saw it as kind of a positive thing. I mean, we don't in our society. It's like not a real positive thing, but yet here it is. Look, it's all the blessings of God. Okay, I won't, I won't say on that. I'll say something really foolish if I keep trying to do that. The list continues, but notice how this confession creates such a high view of the Lord. Okay, that's, that's, the, that's the function of this chapter. For you to start thinking higher thoughts about who God is. Because these are all the things that he did. This is who he is. This is how he responded. This is what he did for his people. Note it. Note it. Created, sustained, chose, calls, sees trouble, acts powerfully, leads, feeds, instructs. Our confession ought to be more about the Lord than it is about ourselves. In verse 16, it says, but they, but they, okay, against the backdrop of all these good things about what the Lord did, but, but, the word, but. When it comes to typical confessions, the word but is a bad word to use. David, uh, no, this was Ken Sandy in his book, The Peacemaker, he listed off, he came up with the seven A's of a good confession. I've, I've recited them to you several times over the years. Number two is avoid if and and but. Typically, if you are making a confession and you insert the word but, you just negated everything you said up until that point. I was wrong, but I was quite tired I was having a bad day, and you were being quite annoying in that thing that you do, so I'm sorry I was wrong. But really it wasn't my fault. But it really was kind of your fault. So when it comes to personal confession, eliminate all the buts, Okay? But in this corporate confession, the word but, and yes, I thought of about a dozen zingers to insert into the sermon at this point, which I'm avoiding all of them. In this confession, corporate confession, the word but becomes so significant because it is building the contrast between the goodness of God and sinful humanity and this is significant to see our sinfulness in light of who God is when but is used to contrast God's power God's faithfulness God's goodness with our response it becomes an appropriate and necessary word but they acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck, meaning they responded to God with contempt due to an inflated view of themselves. They were too important, too independent, too proud to take the subordinate role with God. God, what are you doing on my sheet of music? God, you're interrupting me. You're interrupting my plan. You're interrupting my life. You're getting in the way. Presumption. Stiffened their necks or their backs, an expression of resistance, of an of a unwillingness to bow, an unwillingness to concede, an unwillingness to yield, and they refused to obey. Not they couldn't obey. It's... If it wasn't so sad, it would be humorous to read the laws and realize how easily they can be done. The problem is we don't have the heart to do it. So the activity itself is rarely a difficult activity, okay? Don't work on the Sabbath. But it's impossible. Not because it's impossible not to work. We're great at not working. 
But when God tells us to do something or not to do something, now all of a sudden our heart is engaged and we're dealing with a matter altogether different. They were unmindful of the wonders that God did, quickly forgetting and setting aside all the ways that God had met him. Well, okay, yeah, how quickly we forget the multiple ways God has shown himself faithful to care for us, provide for us, lead us, sustain us, feed us. And they took this to an entirely other level of blasphemy when it says, even when they made it a golden calf and attributed their deliverance from Egypt to that piece of gold. Can you imagine? Can you read the story how God so mightily delivered them, so meticulously, so powerfully? Can you imagine the very people that were rescued out of their bondage and now free in a matter of days or weeks making a golden image and say, and that's how we got out of Egypt. One of the commentators that I've used for the series, J, series uh, J.G. McConville, just simply stated, every act of love on God's part was met and matched by one of disloyalty on the part of his people. That's what the but is for in this chapter. And where does that leave us? With an even more amazing view of who God is. Now at some point, the they turned to us. Chapter, uh, verse 32. Now therefore, our God. Now the pronouns change in verse 32. History has caught up with the people standing in this meeting. They've been tracking with their forefathers and saying, look at what God has done and look at how they've responded. And they're carrying this history all the way forward until it is now them standing there. And the story continues. It's no longer them. It's now it's us. pronoun change from their God to our God. They realize they are true sons and daughters of their parents and have been and are now as much a part of the problem as their forefathers were. We're looking at a chapter in ancient Israel's history happened a long time ago. What in the world does that have to do with us? Their story is not our story. They're separated from that story. The people in chapter 9 are connected to all the history prior to that, but us? God orchestrated an entire history lesson for us. All came about for our learning all for this day, reading chapter 9, recounting all the history, so that you and I would recognize more clearly who God is. A history lesson, so that you and I would know first and foremost who the Lord is. It certainly does connect to us, to you and me. We are very much a part of this same story. If you were to add it all up, the Lord created, sustained, chose, promised, rescued, performed, fed, led, provided for, and gave. Okay? Would you like to tell your life story? What's on your sheet of paper? Okay, I'll tell it to you. The Lord created, sustained, chose, promised, rescued, performed, fed, led, provided for, and gave. It's your story too who God is. It's less about who you are, who I am. We're getting a picture of who the Lord is. 
from this confession, we're beginning to see him and know him. And there's more joy in knowing who the Lord is than sorrow. Sometimes we resist the Lord. We think he means us harm. We think it's going to bring sorrow into our lives, but it's not true. Listen to their confession. He brings more joy. If we were to add up the human responses, presumption, resistance, rebellion, disobedience, not recalling what God has done, not living in a fitting response to all that the Lord has done. Is it really so difficult to see ourselves in this chapter? Is it really so difficult to find ourselves in this story? Are we not on this sheet of music somewhere? It's a story for them. It's a story for all of us. He did it with them. He did it about them so that we would all see what had taken place, who the Lord was, who the people were, and to learn from it. Worship team, you can come on up. Can I ask you a question? What, what, what sheet of music are you singing from? What's, what's on your music stand currently? What are the concepts that you believe to be true that are the concepts controlling you? The hope in this message, with this passage, by the power of the Spirit, is to remove whatever sheet of music you've been living from and have it replaced something altogether like Nehemiah chapter 9. And so when I say, who are you? Well, let me begin here. The Lord. He's the Lord. Him alone. He created me. He has been sustaining me. He's called and chosen me and he's made a promise to me he gave me his spirit and he has been leading me he's been instructing me guiding me he's been feeding me he's been clothing me he's been instructing me That's a beautiful piece of music on your stand then. And we know how to live. Those are the concepts to believe to be true. Those are the concepts to control you. Let's stand together as we close.